Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. show and our latest foray into the listener questions mailbag today we're sizing up julian nagelsman as a prospective usmnt coach we're asking why are newcastle so gosh darn good and we're bringing minor league baseball energy to soccer let's go trash pandas my name's ryan bailey joining me today a man who is loving the new USMNT kit drop. Joe Lowry. Graham thought I was going to come to him for that one, but it's Joe. <laughs> I thought you were coming to Graham as well because I don't think I'm loving the U- US soccer kit drop. I I don't get the paint splatters for the women's national team kit and the, the US new shirt looks like FC Barcelona or England's training top from at really any point over the last four years with the royal blue and the red. I, just, I, I don't get it. Graham, I'm, I want to hear from you what it is that you like. Um, so, Ryan, I'm hijacking your introduction. Graham, explain yourself. <laughs> Hi, so I like both of them, and we will be talking in depth about the two kits on our bonus show on the Patreon, so subscribe to that if, you want. if, if you're if you a nerd like me and you want to hear more chat about the USMNT and USWNT kit drops. But I like the paint splat. You say you don't get why it's got paint splat, splatter on it, Joe. Do we need to get it? Is it not just like a cool pattern? Is that not <laughs> just all kits, a cool pattern? I think it's a cool pattern. The, the away one I'm not so hot on, I still do quite like it. I like the weave through it, and I looked at the replica version of it, and the replica version of it looks bad, where they kind of, like, print that weave on the shirt. But when it's an actual weave through the through the fabric of the shirt, I like it a lot. There we go. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show to hear more fascinating insights such as those about the USMNT kit drop. Uh, by the way, the paint splatters. Wasn't there a point, Graham? In about, I'm gonna say about 2005, where whenever you bought a pair of jeans, it had rips and oh, paint, yeah. paint splatters on it. Like that. The was whole thing. game was how can we make these jeans look like you need to buy new jeans? And so there were paint splatters on it. There was graffiti on there. There was rips. I had a pair of weirdly, I had a pair of LeBron James jeans that had uh, like rips and paint splatters on them. Don't ask why LeBron James was on those jeans. Do not question British high street chains. LeBron James. What? Yeah, but I don't no, know. Stop. We can't, we can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a whole thing we need to explore. Maybe we'll talk about that on the Patreon as well. Uh, no Taylor Rockwell today. He is feeling sick. Taylor, we hope you're feeling much better uh, later in this week and indeed for the rest of your days. We hope you feel better, Taylor. Uh, <laughs> let's get to our listener questions, though. Uh, we've got a very, very easy one to start with, uh, Joe. Hmm. This one's from Daniel Martini, which is a wonderful handle. Hypothetically, if I had an Englishman coming to visit me in the United States, let's say in Orlando, and I have one dinner to impress him, what dish would I tell him to order from the Chili's menu that would make him want to come spend more time in the States? Now, I love, Joe, that the automatic assumption is if someone's coming to visit 
Orlando or the United States that the one dinner that would be impressive would be located in Chili's. You you do the same thing, right? Oh my goodness. This is Taylor, I, I hope you feel better for many reasons. I, I was really hoping you would be on the show to just eviscerate <laughs> Ryan for this question because you would know the exact thing to say to just cut Ryan right to the quick. Also, listeners, I want to be clear. Ryan has the power to choose the questions. Um and, and the rest of us have likely some veto power. But for some reason, none of us decided to cash in that power uh, for this particular show and for this particular question. So we are indeed stuck with the Chili's question. Uh, Ryan, to make you happy, and for literally no other reason, because I would never do this, um, I- I'm looking at the Chili's menu right now online. We're going to go ahead and skip anything that remotely is or even sounds like Mexican food. Uh, we're, we're scooting right past that because that's I just can't stand for it. You don't have faith and, in Chili's to do Mexican food well, Joe? No, no, no I do not. Absolutely <laughs> not. Under any circumstance. Even Ryan is shaking his head. I don't know whether it's at me or at my statement. Oh, it's Either you. way, the answer, Ryan, for you is crispy honey chipotle chicken crispers. We got to get the, the C-R-I-S-P letters in that title as many times as we can. We need to make sure the audience knows it's double crispy. That is what British people want. The end. So... So I'm pretty sure I have been to Chili's in Orlando as well. There's one on International Drive, Ryan, and I'm pretty sure I've been to that Chili's. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, not a terribly memorable experience. So I went back through the menu ahead of this episode, and I have questions about this menu. First of all, why is everything served on a metal tray? Isn't that how they serve food in prison? Yes. It's, it's, it is a bizarre feature of Chili's that everything is on a metal tray. The, the, the chicken crispers, the smokehouse combos, the tacos, the lunch specials all on metal trays and the ultimate smokehouse combo was most interesting to me because i'm not sure what the common thread was to link all the different types of food on that tray so there's chicken tenders quesadillas some sort of hot dog or sausage fries corn and is it like fried bread ryan or it looked like toast to me but i assume it's not toast that's like a sort of meal i'd make if i was a student quite frankly okay firstly how dare you uh secondly the the metal tray thing that's an affectation that lots of restaurants do and like the thing where they serve things on a wooden plank as well oh yeah i've seen that isn't it too so that i think it's just something like that it's a cheaper version of that but joe nailed it with the five magical words crispy honey chipotle chicken crispers crispy twice um (laughs) add in a half and half tea you get the skillet cookie for dessert and that is the ryan special if you go to any location you ask the ryan special What's for for dessert? Just a skillet I, I cookie. That. So you get a skill a, a cookie in a skillet, and they put ice cream on it. And the skillet is um, a million degrees. So if any of your children touch it, they are forever burned. Uh, but that's kind of the gauntlet you run when you have a um, skillet cookie. So it's a giant things. cookie for dessert. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Is this a, a, of the kids' menu? <laughs> <laughs> All right, settle down, everybody. Um, I, I'm in a good mood because I actually had a Hard Rock Cafe for lunch today. Oh, nice. He can't be stopped. He I can't, can't be, be stopped. Oh. <laughs> but Graham, we, talk, uh, we will talk about soccer in a second, but International Drive, it's got it's got a good selection. There's a Tony Romas just down the street from the yeah. Chili's. There's, uh, there's a Hash Hash Go-Go, which is a good breakfast spot. And one restaurant which I might place on a particularly high pedestal, Fogo de Chao. Have you ever oh, been to Fogo de Chao? I haven't been there, but I, you've spoken about it before. My top of my list for the Orlando chain restaurants is Bahama Breeze. That's, oh yeah, that's my favorite. That cannot yeah. be a real place. Graham, I could see Graham sitting there in like a Tommy Bahama open yeah. shirt with his, you know, part, party animal look going on. I like that. Yeah. yeah, I like the aesthetic. That's there very me. 
Very good. Let's get to some soccer anyway. Thank you, Lister, for indulging us in that one. And if you agree with those five magical words from Chile's, let us know because those are the correct words. I hope that answered your question. Daniel, um, your English guests will be very, very impressed and will want to return to the States uh, infinitely after trying the C-H-C-C-C, <laughs> as we're going to call it now. Neville Neville has been in touch, uh, presumably related to famous twin soccer players. Uh, Neville asks, how would Julian Nagelsmann do with the USMNT and would it be feasible to hire him? Graham, as we record, Julian Nagelsmann has not been hired by Chelsea or Tottenham or any Mm. other club. That could change by the time we release this recording, but he's not a Chelsea or Tottenham boss yet. Let's presume he's on the market would it be a feasible transaction for him to go to the USMNT? Shaking your head, uh, no, which is the correct answer. But how would he do <laughs> if he was there? Yeah, so I'm afraid it isn't feasible at all for the US to hire Nagelsmann just because it wouldn't be feasible for any national association to hire Nagelsmann, I, I, I think. Let's just say, for argument's sake, that Nagelsmann was interested from a soccer point of view. He was on €8 million Euros a season at Bayern Munich and Berhalter's salary as US, USMNT head coach was $1.3 million. So roughly uh, like eight times less than what Nagelsmann was was on at Bayern Munich. So that is a, a big gap to make up $1.3 million, so that was the salary? But Greg Berhalter's wow. base salary for uh, his job in 2021, I believe, was $1.3 million. You could get nearly 20 Graham Potters for that. <laughs> he could, yeah, he could. But even from a football point of view, I don't think Nagsman is interested in this job. Um, I guess in theory, some of the work done by Berhalter would give him a bit of a head start where he to hypothetically take over. He likes his teams to press high and use possession to create uh, transition moments, which I guess isn't too far away from that Berhalter quote about using possession to disorganise opponents. Um, Nagelsmann is also very good at developing young players, so I guess that would work quite well for this group of US players at this moment in time. Um, and I also feel like you'd get away with riding an electric longboard to training in this US M&T camp than you would at Bayern Munich, um, which where it w- clearly wasn't part of the Bayern Munich etiquette to do that. I feel like Sergino Dest and DeAndre Yedlin and Tim Weah might be a little bit more open to that sort of thing, but... It's all moot because he is not going to be the next USMT manager. Yeah, it all, Graham, it all comes down to whether Christian Pulisic wants a father figure or an older brother. Um, you know, that, that's the pivotal point in all of this Julian Nagelsmann discussion. Or whether as Tim Reed wants a younger brother? <laughs> whether Tim Reed wants a younger brother. He's got one, it's Walker Zimmerman. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, well done, well done. You are, you are sharp today. Uh, no, I, I agree with Graham. This isn't feasible just because of Nagelsmann's status right now on the international scene, especially for someone so young, right? Like, you can almost imagine it a little bit more with a Pep or a Klopp because they've already done it at the club level, Nagelsmann is still very much in prove-it mode. And I think many folks, myself included, believe that he is an elite manager, but the reality is he has never had sustained success at a super club. That just hasn't happened before. Bayern Munich was his first swing, and it ended prematurely, way before I thought it was going to end. So for Nagelsmann, I don't think he's even remotely close to wanting to go to manage on the international level at this point, which is generally regarded I think it's fair to say, as a step down from the club game, especially those elite jobs. So Nagelsmann's not a feasible option at this point. The money thing, Gren, that you mentioned is a fascinating part of all this. And it's it's a shame because we don't have a ton of insight into what this looks like. It's been reported by a, a number of folks that, you know, U.S. soccer is not going to go out and, and splash the cash to get a Nagelsmann type of manager, like that they don't have the money to do that. But then you think about all of the competitions that are coming up. You're hosting the World Cup in 2026, primarily 
on your shores. You're hosting the Copa America in 2024. Like, you know, you're going to generate revenue. I know CONCACAF's taking a much larger role in organizing that 2024 Copa America than they did back in 2016 when U.S. Soccer, I believe, organized it and as a result received a, a lot of the revenue. So it's not going to be the exact same thing, but... You know, I, I don't see why U.S. Soccer couldn't go out and spend $8 million on a manager, you know, as, assuming that this is going to be the biggest and most important cycle in the program's history. The one where you are best positioned to win a World Cup, then you're better positioned to do that than you maybe have ever been. So, I don't know. I don't necessarily think that $8 million should be out of the question, but I, I do absolutely think that Julian Nagelsmann is out of the question here. Yeah. They've never done it before, though, Joe, US Soccer. Right. They've never paid right. that amount from manager. So I went back and looked just, just there. I googled Jurgen Klinsmann's salary because at the time, um, I know this might seem a little bit strange now given how he's thought of by US fans, but at the time he was a bit of a coup for, for US Soccer, getting him as the head coach. He was paid $1.4 million a, a season, so pretty much the same as what Greg Barhalter was paid. So there, there does seem to be a level that they are shopping at and they don't deviate much from that. Wow, they've just got that one number in mind. They maybe they've still got the same piece of paper. They slid over the desk to Jurgen's representatives. They just, just scored the name out. Yeah, <laughs> good stuff. All right, Joe. So, what, what's going on with the USMNT coaching situation? Who is the front runner realistically for this job? I, I'm not sure anybody knows right now, Ryan. To be honest with you, things have been relatively quiet outside of that Thierry Henry report that I think ESPN had which is also a little bit strange because there was no name on the report. So it's really unclear sort of a lot of the details surrounding that. But I think that's been the biggest and most recent piece of meaningful news. And I guess I guess the Berhalter investigation findings were released after that. And so the fact that Berhalter is still you know, technically a candidate and, and maybe more than technically a candidate is another notable thing. But like we don't we don't really know. We don't have any main idea here. And Taylor and Goss and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It is frustrating with two different competitions coming up this summer. That would be a, a great time for a new manager to come in and familiarize themselves with the pool. You get to work with different groups of players, get to see sort of what you like, what you don't like at a, a high stakes, but not Copa America stakes environment. This summer would be the perfect time. You know, June, mid-June would be the perfect time to have somebody in place already. But U.S. Soccer has said that they're going to hire a sporting director first, and then the sporting director is going to lead the search for the, men, the, the manager on the men's side. And they don't have a sporting director yet. And it seems like they don't have all that much interest from candidates that would be wanting to fill that sporting director position. So things are taking time here. As U.S. Soccer said they would, it just is a little bit frustratingly slow from my perspective because it feels like you're missing out on valuable time here. Indeed. Neville, Neville, thank you very much for that question. By the way, I got my Graham Potter gag the wrong way around. You could buy one twentieth of Graham Potter's. Potter's yeah, I was confused about that, but then yeah. I, th I didn't trust my math enough to <laughs> question you, so just yeah, went with it. You could just get the roll neck on the, on, yeah. the black, on the black roll neck is all you could get for that. You could get the bags under his eyes. <laughs> and the, yeah, the long exhaled sigh. Perhaps you get part of that with it as well. Neville, thank you for that question. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dig a little bit more into USMNT questions. Back shortly. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Calvin Lizum has been in touch. Calvin says, for the summer transfer window, which USMNT players would benefit from a move to a previous club, e.g. Dest going back to Ajax or Barcelona, or Weyer going to Celtic or PSG? Interesting proposition here, Joe. My mind went to Christian Pulisic, perhaps going back to Borussia Dortmund. Yeah, that's the top of my list right now. I think everybody... Everybody agrees that Christian Pulisic should not be playing for Chelsea next year. And I don't know that he should be playing for Dortmund either. But it seems pretty clear that Dortmund is a better option for him at this point in his career after a Chelsea move that that didn't go well, at least not well consistently. There's that project restart time back in, in 2020 where he is an elite attacking player in that league. But things have changed a lot since then. And Chelsea's squad has changed and... Uh, Frank Lampard is no longer in charge of that team. So Pulisic hasn't looked well, like ho- himself. Hold your horses there, there Joe. Yeah, Apparently yeah, he is in the running to be the interim manager till the end of the season. So maybe that changes the, the picture for old CP. Chelsea are such a well-run club. Man, wow. I think that's the takeaway from all of this. Um, so Christian Pulisic to Dortmund I think would be good. He would be uh, a starter for that team, I truly believe. And it could be fun if Giorena is healthy for any extended period of time to get those two players in the Dortmund attack at the same time. I'm here for it. So I'd like I'd like Pulisic to Dortmund. Another one that Calvin mentioned that I really like is Dest Ajax. I think that's a great one as well. They're, same with Pulisic. Nobody thinks Dest should be back at Milan or Barcelona, which are the, the two clubs that he's played for this season. Currently on loan with Milan, they said, you know, we're not going to sign you next year. And Barcelona very clearly don't want him either. So going to Ajax where you get to play high-quality games at a relatively consistent pace in Europe – and getting to be in the Eredivisie where you know you, you're comfortable and where you know you're going to have some success with Ajax. They have some quality fullbacks, but Dest would be the, the most talented one of the bunch from, from what I can glean. So that would be a good one. And the last one, and Graham, I want your response to this genuinely. CCV to Bournemouth is the, the yes, third and final answer. Well. Okay, because it feels to me like <laughs> CCV has sort of accomplished Scotland a little bit, right? He, he has come in, he has established himself as a, a rock and a fan favorite at the best club in Scotland right now for Celtic. And it feels like it's time to, to test himself. And Bournemouth is completely different than even than they were in, in 2020-21, which is, where, which is when CCV, CCV was there. They were in the championship then. They are still in the Premier League now. And this is somewhat contingent on them still being in the Premier League next season. But, you know, I, I think it's time for him to face a little bit more adversity and to challenge himself a little bit more on a weekly basis. Graham, what do you think of this? Yeah, so Joe, your three selections are basically just a retweet of my entire notes. I had Pulisic to Dortmund, Dest, I know it's in the question, but Dest back to Ajax, and then I had CCV back to Bournemouth. Ideally, so the two Premier League clubs that he has played for previously, obviously he started off at Spurs, I think is slightly too high level for him right now. And Bournemouth, ideally, there would be somewhere, there would be a team in between those two extremes of Bournemouth and Spurs is where I would play CCV, ideally. But obviously the question doesn't allow for that. And Bournemouth, if they stay up in the Premier League, 
They do like to play with, play with the ball. I think CCV has made massive, massive improvements in his game in that regard. In possession, playing for Celtic, he wouldn't be playing for Ange Postacoglu's Celtic if that wasn't the case. I now want to see him carry that into a stronger league, like the Premier League. And yes, he plays in the Champions League for Celtic and the Europa League for Celtic and so on. But doing at a, doing it at a higher level every single week against Premier League opposition, that needs to be the next step for him. And while I'm not totally sold on Bournemouth from the, the available list, that is where mm. I would place him. Um, Calvin's question particularly says this is a summer transfer window, Graham. So with that respect, Tyler Adams, Weston McKenney, Brennan Aronson, if Leeds do not survive oh, yeah. this season, presumably they would all go back to their respective clubs too. Yeah, that changes the picture. So if Leeds go down, and actually if they won last night, right? Yep, they, they beat did. Nottingham yep. Forest. They're two so points they're surely... ahead of the relegation zone and they're like, Second in the Premier League now, the way it's working. <laughs> yeah, it's it nuts. Is <laughs> it is nuts. Um, so at this moment in time, at the point of recording, they're maybe looking a little bit better than they were when this question was sent in. But nonetheless, if Leeds go down, then that changes the, the, the picture entirely. Um, McKenney's on loan, right, Joe? Yes, yeah, he is. He's yes. on loan from Juventus. So he has that option to go back to Juventus. I don't know whether he goes back there and gets game time, but you would hopefully expect that he would get game time somewhere next season if it's uh, not Juventus at another club. Tyler Adams back to RB Leipzig. I mean, it's better than Leeds in the Championship, I guess, but I feel like Tyler Adams has shown enough in the Premier League. There probably would be some interest from other teams in that league if Leeds were to go down, and I would like to see him stay in the Premier League rather than you know go back to Leipzig in this hypothetical scenario. I Ryan, I love that you brought up Leeds because I thought specifically about Brendan Aronson and, and this isn't fully formed, and it, it certainly doesn't fit within the context of this question because I don't want to send Aronson back to the Union. I don't want to send him back to RB Salzburg. I, I just would love for Brendan Aronson to find a team that is something other than Red Bull-y. And maybe Leeds will become that, right? And maybe this next season will be a great moment for them to become something a little bit different, selfishly, I think, for Brendan Aronson so that his skill set can be a bit more diverse, right? All, all he's been schooled in over the last, you know, five, six, seven, eight, maybe longer, I don't know how many years, is pressing, is transition play, is quick attacking combinations. And, and I don't think he's ever really had a chance to work on the other aspects of his game that you think of for a more possession-heavy team, that you think of the U.S. having to pull out against lower-quality opposition. Like, that's that's why I'm so intrigued by Taylor Booth and by Alex Andejas for the U.S. right now at wide is because... I think they bring more on the ball. Like they bring more variety in how they play. I was talking with John Tolkien, young left bulls red back. He's the guy with the crazy hair. If anybody didn't didn't put those two things together immediately, I was talking with him last week, I believe a week ago, and and basically asked him a similar question about you know you play for Red Bull in New York, and all you guys do is press and hit long balls in the air. Do you feel like you're you're missing things in your game? Do you feel like you you wish you had more time to work on? breaking lines with the ball on the ground and doing things that, you know, the world's best possession teams do. And he said, yeah, like that, that is something that you compromise. This is now me paraphrasing him aggressively. Folks can go read the rest of those comments, but like, yeah, you know, I, I wish I had more time to work on that other stuff, but that's, that's not really how we play. And so I feel like there's this big hole in Aronson's game that is there because he's only ever played for these very Red Bull kinds of teams. And maybe it's too late. Maybe he'll never develop that. Or maybe when leads, you know, are a bit more stable next year, if they're a bit more stable next year, with you know different tactical vision than what Jesse Marsh was trying to implement, then maybe Aronson will be a bit more well-rounded. But I think I've been a, a bit harsh on him in the past, or at least harsher on him than others. And for listeners, that's kind of why, or at least that's part of my thinking on Aronson and, and maybe his lack of well-roundedness. 
Thank you very much, Calvin, for that question. Let's go to Josh McCarty, who says, do professionals who play on rival clubs but on the same national team not talk about club stuff during training or playing with the national team? For example, German, Dortmund and Bayern players. And is that ever kind of awkward? And the second part, Josh asks, do rival fans of clubs ignore this fact and consider it taboo when in the stadium during a national team? Or do they sit together or do they sit in separate sections? Which is an interesting proposition. Uh, Joe, I don't think we can answer the first part of that question fully because we're not literally in those national team camps having those discussions with the players. But anecdotally, we have seen news reports in the past of players uh, having certain factions with their teams. There was a story, in fact, just last week in the last international break of unrest in the Spain squad as video showed Barcelona and Real Madrid stars separated in training. Uh, When you actually looked at the uh, article, which I read on a uh, red top tabloid which shan't be named um, it was just a picture of the Barcelona players and the Real Madrid <laughs> players just talking like separately <laughs> one another probably because they know each other quite well and they right. see each other every day that was the story essentially yeah yeah. This, this is a great question from Josh and something that I've thought about before it's difficult for us to answer holistically but I will say you know there are some uh, some pieces of evidence here that speak to what Josh is asking about so you know, players certainly talk about club stuff. Like, we, we've heard that from players outside of the national team environment. I'm, and I'm sure there are national team teammates that don't like each other all that much. And, and some of that can absolutely stem from club rivalries. You mentioned Spain just now, Ryan, in that, that silly report. Uh, there's been a, a relatively recent comment from Gerard Piquet when he's not uh, blowing up balloons for his uh, his sporting empire. Uh, there's There's been a, a report and some comments from him about Spain back in the 2010s when Jose Mourinho was managing Real Madrid and Pep Guardiola was managing FC Barcelona. Piquet said that the atmosphere was was pretty bad at times between players on both spot um, on both sides of that rivalry when they were with the national team. Spain teammate and, and Real Madrid goalkeeper at the time, Iker Casillas, according to Piquet, stopped speaking to him at least four times. The quote is, I remember going to the national team, this is from Piquet, and after those games it was tough because Mourinho goes to the mind of the player and he says, these guys hate you, then you believe that. I was in the dressing room of the national team and went to Iker Casillas, uh, and and the guy did not talk to me. So I think you do get some of these tensions that boil over into the national team environment. I don't think it's terribly common and terribly frequent. Like I think today when players are oftentimes coming up through the youth national teams together, when they're when they're kind of boys from an early age on the men's side, like they're they're friends. Like the US national team, a lot of those guys are pals you think about England the culture there seems to be like you know we're we're all pals and we have strong rivalries in the Premier League but there seems to be a lot of camaraderie in that team especially amongst the younger players so I don't know that this will happen as much going forward but it will always happen to one degree or another I I I totally agree with your sentiments there Joe but I will say the England example you mentioned there I think is relatively new and that's something that's been right. commented on with this England team under Gareth Southgate the yeah. reason one of the reasons why they do so well and so harmonious is that they don't have those divisions I believe I can't remember it was Peter Crouch or someone was talking about the camp in sort of the 2006-2010 era yeah. for England was very divided the Man United and the Liverpool players like wouldn't sit together is that right Graham? Yeah. 
Yeah, so there was a time a, f- a few seasons ago when uh, Rio Ferdinand, Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard were all pundits for BT Sport at the same time. And there were some really good discussions on this subject about what it was like to be in the England squad. I have no doubt Peter Crouch was in on those discussions as well, which is what you're referencing. And this was a time when they're all playing for rival rival clubs. And basically, as you say, Ryan, they, they sat at different tables when eating meals. They wouldn't mix with each other. There would be a Man United group, there would be a Chelsea group, a Liverpool group, and those divisions hindered England from maximising their talent at that time. And if you go back to the 2006 World Cup in particular, and you look through the England team for that tournament, I think it was the most talented team in the world. And certainly in terms of the the starting 11, the the number of world-class players in that team. And so for them to only get to the quarterfinals of that tournament, there were clearly other factors at, at, at play there. Obviously, Wayne Rooney getting sent off in the quarterfinal against Portugal didn't help. But nonetheless, I think the, the divisions within that squad was were, were quite damaging. And I think that's one of Southgate's biggest achievements as England national team manager has been dissol- dissolving those sort of divisions. And you look at the last international window there with... Um, Bakayo Saka and Harry Kane assisting each other for one another's goals and celebrating with each other. That's an Arsenal superstar and a Tottenham Hotspur captain. Or rather, he's not actually the Tottenham Hotspur captain, but Tottenham Hotspur's best player. Uh, Mixing together, clearly on the same wavelength together, celebrating together, and you just wouldn't have got that in past England teams. Um, My experience, if I can address the fan aspect of this question from Josh, my experience with supporting Scotland is that 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 fan tribalism doesn't always disappear, even for fans. So Ryan Jack, who plays for Rangers, was booed at the Scotland game um, against Cyprus just in the last window there, and Steve Clark came out and said that was unacceptable from Scotland fans. And a bit of context here is that Scotland national team fans tend not to be Celtic or Rangers fans. They tend to be sort of fans of provincial clubs like Stirling Albion, I guess, or St Johnson or Aberdeen or the Dundee clubs or so on. Um, so if you have a particularly unpopular player for either Celtic or Rangers who plays for the national team, then some animosity can carry over into the national team from from fans. So while I'm not aware of fans of certain clubs sitting in different areas, there is always a club subtext in the stands, even for national team games. Graham, as a follow-up there, do Celtic and Rangers fans not support the national team? Obviously, that is a that is a sweeping generaliz- generalization, and it's one that I would make if we're speaking generally. Uh, no, they don't. So Rangers fans um, traditionally, I guess, would be more unionist. A lot of Rangers fans will support England. Um, Celtic fans um, maybe more likely to support Scotland, but a number of them will will support the the Republic of Ireland as well. And I guess when your teams are that successful in the club game. For instance, what what supporting Scotland does for me, and Ryan's going to laugh at this because Scotland haven't uh, traditionally been very successful, but the itch that supporting Scotland for me scratches is the big game experience and go and and actually having a good team to support and follow, unlike Stirling Albion who are in the fourth tier of Scottish football. So that's the itch that that scratches for me. Whereas like Celtic and Rangers fans maybe don't have that that scratch have that itch. So I think there's a there's a, a different dynamic there. Yeah, I, th- I think that's kind of replicated in other countries. Uh, you, there are factions of Liverpool fans that won't support the England team and they don't 
uh, yeah. sing the national anthem and things like that for various well, if, political if, reasons. Yeah, if, if you look at England games, and Ryan, you know this, you, you see the England flags and they, they, they print the, the town or the club or whatever on the flag. If you look at an England game and look at those flags and where those places are, it is Burnley, Blackburn, Sheffield... Um, sometimes in the northeast, you very rarely see, you know, Manchester United or Liverpool or che- maybe you do see Chelsea, but it, there, it's it, the the fans tend to be drawn from clubs that maybe aren't used to supporting that caliber of a team. Yeah, definitely. And it's, as a as an England fan, it's always fun to look at those flags and see the most local one to where I grew up. There was always one for Bexley, which is the London borough I grew up in, uh, and they always had. A, I think they still do. The England games have a flag for that, which is cool. But you're right; they're always provincial towns, and they're always sort of like smaller conurbations, if you will. Graham. Yeah. Uh, very interesting question there, Josh. Thank you very much. I think part part of the, the the core of that question also gets to why I don't like the national team as much as I love my club team. Uh, I've considered myself club over country. And I think it's because my early in my formative years of watching soccer, Manchester United come to play my team and David Beckham's there. I'm supposed to hate him for that game. But in the international break a week later, I'm supposed to love him. I I can't quite... Yeah. That doesn't quite work in my head because he's the same person the week after, you know? I get that. I mean, in more modern terms and in, in present day, that isn't an issue for you no. with Wimbledon. <laughs> <laughs> but I get, I get that historically that that was a that was a, a problem. Chris Gunter went to the World Cup last time round, Graham. Come on, come on. Anyway, <laughs> of course. Uh, Josh, thank you very much for that question. Let's go to Joshua Bishop, who says well, a lot of Joshes actually today. Uh, Josh, uh, Josh Bishop says, what made Newcastle so good? Money. Obviously, yeah, yeah, that's the short answer. <laughs> Obviously, the new owner investments play a big role, but their first team isn't filled with A-list stars, and Eddie Howe isn't someone who's considered an elite manager yet. And yet, they're, in, they're third in the table at the time of this question being asked, which I believe is still the case. How have they accomplished this? Yeah, Newcastle knocking on the door of the Champions League for the first time in 20 years, 2003, the last time they were in the competition, virtually unbeatable at home St James is very much a fortress Graham um, this season but as Josh says or Joshua says they're not exactly spending like Chelsea because no one yeah. is and Eddie Howe isn't on that he, he's on the Graham Potter level of, of manager eliteness yeah so I'm pretty sure that the picture around uh, Newcastle United is going to change pretty rapidly and they are going to spend a lot of money over the coming years but right now they've certainly got value for money and if you look at what clubs like Everton have have spent um, and what they have got for that money and what Newcastle United have got for roughly around £200 million since the Saudi Arabian takeover in October 2021 I want to say that that was. Clearly, they have got a lot for that money. And I think Eddie Howe deserves a huge amount of uh, credit for that success. So that success, if we're to drill down into what he has done, I think so far that success has been built on a solid defence, which is somewhat surprising given given how the criticism of his Bournemouth team when they were in the Premier League was that they conceded too many goals. But uh, Newcastle United have the best defence in the Premier League this season. They've conceded just 19 times in 27 games. A lot of the money that they have spent has been on the defensive areas, so Kieran Trippier, 
Uh, Dan Burns, Sven Botman, Nick Pope have all come in. That's essentially an entirely new back line. And so that has made a, a big difference. I think they're very good at exploiting specific weaknesses in opponents. Uh, we saw that at the weekend when Newcastle knew that they could pressure David De Gea when playing out from the back. And Isaac, if anyone saw this, it was highly amusing, but very effective. Isaac was like a sprinter on the start line on the edge of the box for goal kicks, where he was begging David De Gea to play it out short so he could basically charge him down and it worked very well against Man City earlier in the season they stopped the build up by counter pressing the fullback areas so I think Newcastle have a smart coach in Howe who has an intelligent team full of players who are willing to work for him at this point you know there's no egos in that team they've all bought in they've seen what Howe can do with players like Joe Linton who's been completely reinvented as a ball carrying line breaking central midfielder or Dan Byrne who is playing at left back despite being about eight feet tall he did a very good job of stopping Anthony at the weekend there it's right in that sweet spot at the moment where everyone is on the same page including the fans Ryan you mentioned their home record there St James's Park is now the best atmosphere in the Premier League um, for my money anyway that has to be some sort of factor as well so I think um, all those all those factors have, have culminated in Newcastle's Newcastle's rise from, from personal experience St James's Park is the best atmosphere in soccer I think it's a tremendous place to visit it, listener if you ever go to the UK uh, try and get to a game at St James's because it is unlike anything else you've ever been to I would suggest Joe uh, Graham makes some very good points there. Is there something to be said about the belief that is instilled by the bright future ahead of Newcastle? Yeah, they haven't spent you know bi- billions at this point, but they know that the horizon looks pretty for them. Does that psychologically maybe give them some kind of lift? Do we think, or am I just talking nonsense? Maybe. Like I, I honestly don't. I don't know. Say he's I'm talking sure. nonsense. Just say he's talking. I would. Nonsense, I would lean towards the fact that you're talking nonsense. Um, <laughs> for, for me, it, it falls much more down to the money side. And I know, Joshua, you you kind of said, like, other than that. But I, I do think that's the place you have to start. You go through and you look at net spend over the last year, and Newcastle are fifth, according to the transfer market, in terms of transfer spending. Like, they are splashing a lot of money. It is not on the players that Chelsea are splashing money on, right? It is not on a lot of the names that have sort of taken over soccer. They're not going out and, and spending hundred and Fifty thousand million dollars on Mudrick, right? They're they're spending seventy million on Isak. They're spending forty million and change on Bruno. Like like they're, I think they've gone out and signed slightly more under the radar players. Not that either of those players is under the radar in the global transfer market, but you know there's a difference between the players that they have gone out and tried to acquire, going out to sign Nick Pope as your goalkeeper, right? Like like they have approached things at a slightly more reserved level. And they've also just had an incredible hit rate, right? For as much money as they spent, you know, they have hit on more signings than Chelsea have hit on. Like, like they've hit on a lot of players. Isak was injured for a while, but now I believe he has six goals and was, I thought, very good against Manchester United and is showing why he was one of the the highest profile young strikers in world football. So they've hit on a lot of these guys, almost at like an unsustainable rate, in my view, on a lot of these transfers. To the point where you know they're going to splash more cash because they're the richest club in the world, but eventually they're going to miss on more of these signings, and we'll probably say like, "Oh, why aren't Newcastle you know quite as efficient as they were before?" Whatever it is, and I think there's going to be some natural drop off there. But in general, you combine spending a bunch of money, which is sort of why I posited on the big thing a couple of weeks ago that Tottenham aren't 
really an elite Premier League club at this point because they don't spend at the level of an elite Premier League club. You couple their spending with, I think, good coaching and a, a smart, relatively pragmatic tactical approach from Eddie Howe mixed with, and this is to the other point that Joshua makes in his question, that the team isn't really filled with A-list stars, which I think is fair. You know, you, you combine good coaching with spending money, with good recruitment, with Eddie Howe's ability or players' natural ability, and Ryan, maybe this is where some of the intangibles come in. I, I truly don't know. Of some of these players that aren't elite, Sean Longstaff, right? Miguel Amiron, yeah. who is a very good player, but is not like, you know, a world beater necessarily. You're getting more out of those players. And for Newcastle, that I think has helped them progress sort of in this first phase or maybe the second phase of how they're trying to build this club into a genuine trophy contender and a, a profitable mechanism and a club that's worth a ton of money. Like those players, the role players becoming almost more than role players, I think has done a lot to elevate this team. If you look at the front six, so to speak, that Newcastle have, have played most often in the Premier League this season. Um, so I mentioned the defence. That is where a lot of the investment has been focused. I'm not trying to deny the spending that has taken place. But if you look at the front six, I'll, uh, there's only one of those players that has been bought in, and that's Bruno Grimares. The others are Sean Longstaff, Joe Willick, Mig- Miguel Almiron, uh, Callum Wilson, and Alan San Maximan. So five out of those six were inherited by Eddie Howe. And... All of those players, I would say, have improved, in some cases, dramatically under Eddie Howe's management. So, yes, the money can't be denied. Yes, of course, it's very unlikely they would be in this position without the money. But Eddie Howe, for me, is is the biggest, most important, most successful signing that they have made in the Saudi Arabian age so far. And, and, and that's a little bit of humble pie for me because I had him down as Newcastle United's Mark Hughes. I thought he was the guy before the guy for Newcastle United. They would, they would go and get the manager to, bring, to take them into the Champions League after him. And it looks like he's going to prove me wrong. He is an exceptional coach. And I think we see that in how Newcastle United are playing right now. So the TLDR of this answer, guys, is that Newcastle have combined money with a sensible plan. Uh, unlike certain other teams who burn through their cash, they actually... <coughs> Chelsea. Uh, yeah, that's the one. I don't know what happened. Excuse you. Um, they actually, like, like Manchester City when they started out with their, their plan, they seem to be actually have some foresight here and are doing things in a smart manner. Yeah. And that extends to some of the appointments and, and hires that they have made in their front office. So Dan Ashworth is the sporting director at Newcastle United. He is the guy credited with building Brighton into the club that they are today. He also worked for the FA as well and played an important role in the turnaround there and the production of young players for the national team. He was their first significant front office hire. And while I don't have the names in front of me right now, if you Googled it, you would find a list of 10 other um, front office hires from clubs like Chelsea and Brighton and other clubs around Europe and England where Newcastle United are basically they've they've put a big focus on building out that front office and they're banking on that manifesting itself in the team on the pitch and while it's still early days I think we're seeing we're, we're seeing the fruits of that already and over the coming seasons I bet there, there's there's more to show for it indeed Joshua Bishop thank you for that question uh let's take a quick break we'll be right back looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We had a question from Joshua Bishop before the break. We now have a question from Joshua Bishop, uh, presumably the same one. Uh, we shall look into that, but double Josh, treble Josh, because the last three questions have been from Josh's. So much Josh to go around in this episode today. At what point do we consider Pep Guardiola to be the greatest manager of all time? Over Sir Alex Ferguson, that is, with a qualifier there from Josh. Graham, I'd say uh, when he wins as much might be the short answer here. Yeah, so I think maybe, unless my, my notes are incorrect, Josh's question here, um, does, it, does it not stipulate the greatest Premier League manager of all ah. time over Sir Alex Ferguson? Because those are two different things. If I missed that out in reading out the question, I apologise. Yes, the specific question is the greatest Premier League manager. So we're not saying he's better than, uh, you know, national team yeah. or else, elsewhere. Yeah. So, but, but, but you are right. The simple answer is when Guardiola has won more Premier League titles than Ferguson. So he's won four, um, Ferguson won 13. So he's still got a long way to go. Um, and I'm going to qualify that a little bit because it's not quite as easy as that um, because I would say Guardiola has, has done much more to set the zeitgeist in world soccer. Ferguson never really did that. He didn't, as much as he was hugely, hugely successful... He didn't stand for anything in a tactical or ideological sense, certainly not to the same extent as Pep Guardiola. Um, So I guess it depends on the definition of greatest because Guardiola has also changed English soccer. And I don't know if Ferguson did that. I think actually Arsene Wenger probably did more in that regard. But Ferguson won more, uh, quite a bit more. He spanned generations. For for me, he built three uh, truly great teams over three or four generations, and I would say Guardiola's still only just transitioning out of his first at Manchester City. So he's he's got a long way to go to reach Sir Alex Ferguson levels. But again, it comes down to your definition of greatest, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Th- these are always tricky to answer, right, because they're super subjective, but I love it because it's, it's fun to have these comparisons. I think in terms of the Premier League, and when you say the greatest Premier League manager of all time, I think that means you're talking about what someone accomplished in the Premier League, right? Pep Guardiola has won a lot of titles. Most of them have been outside of England, right? So if you're talking about the work that a manager has accomplished in the Premier League, it will take 20 years of Pep Guardiola coaching Man City to get, to catch up with uh, with Sir Alex Ferguson. Like it, The longevity is the thing that Ferguson has that Pep doesn't have and, and that I think really no Premier League manager ever will, right? Graham, you, Taylor, and I talked about on the Patreon the other day, like 12 managers have been fired, this year in the Premier League. It is it is absurd. The job security now is just not what it was, right? The mentality, and I actually think a lot of this applies to like sectors outside of sport as well. You know, people just don't stay at the same job for so long anymore. You don't have people staying in one job for 25 years. It doesn't really happen. And, and certainly in sport now where expectations are so high, where clubs are very trigger happy with their managers because it's an easy way to, to sort of escape blame and say, we're fixing the problem without really actually fixing it. I, I don't envision any manager coaching in a single role today or even any of the current managers you know, getting to Ferguson levels. I think if you remove 
the Premier League tag and just say greatest manager of all time, this is a much closer discussion. Fergie still has a lot more longevity than Pep does, but the title conversation gets a lot closer. I believe that Pep has won 10 domestic titles, league titles, across Barcelona, Bayern Munich, and Man City. That's impressive. Ferguson won 13 Premier League titles with Man United. I know he wins some in Scotland with Aberdeen as well. I think, I'm not, I'm not sure how apples to apples those things are. But yeah, you take the Premier League tag off of this, and I think you're in a much different place. Ferguson did win the European Cup Winners' Cup, though, with Aberdeen. So I get what you're saying, Joe, about what does a Scottish title mean, but sure. to win a European trophy with Aberdeen, I actually think that's Ferguson's greatest achievement as a manager because that, that w- will never happen again. Well, well, that, Graham, makes me think of the premise of the question itself as the greatest Premier League manager. I suppose it depends by what we measure greatness. Obviously, titles is a good way to do that, but you could argue Sam Allardyce constantly keeping teams out of relegation was a great how, how have we inserted big sam into <laughs> this right, discussion okay jo- Jose Mourinho said that what that season when he got man united to finish second was his greatest ever season that was his best ever achievement right yeah do we do we read anything into that because of, it's all relative to what you're working with isn't it so what so what your what your argument here is should we see titles as the only um you know tangible symbol of success that's what you're saying and success can be achieved in other ways by managers yes. who I'm, maybe I'm, yeah. don't you're, don't get that title. There's so other for metrics. example, yeah. David Moyes getting Everton into the top four in the early 2000s when you had a great Manchester United, a great Arsenal team, you had Newcastle United strong. That was a fantastic achievement for David Moyes. And I think he probably got the Manchester United job on the back of that that historical achievement as Everton manager. Obviously, he doesn't get a trophy for that as much as Arsene Wenger wanted a trophy for fourth place. But that is a great success. That's what you're saying is that there's the, the criteria becomes a little bit blurred when you account for all those different things. Yeah, and it's the old argument that Pep wouldn't do as well with Burnley as he would with Man United, right? Right, and and Ryan, I think you're totally right. I was laughing at your examples because they were funny, but I think ultimately you're you're <laughs> correct about that. Like, you know, under this logic, you could sort of combine the two and maybe Claudio Ranieri is the best Premier League manager of all time, right? Helping Leicester pull off the 5,000 to 1 back in, what was that, 2015, 2016 in that season? Right. You know, I, I do think... I. I completely agree with you, Ryan. Titles should not define who the greatest manager is. I just don't know like other ways to do it. Like I think there should be other ways. And realistically, you know, you put an inferior manager in charge of Man City, they're going to do better than a better coach with a worse team, like like a dramatically worse team. I think we all sort of know that logically. You know, you could put Pep on Burnley, like this is what we just said, and he's not going to be nearly as successful, but does that mean he's a worse coach? I no, because it's still the same person. So, yeah, there should be better ways to have these kinds of discussions than just titles, which I think is what all of us came in with as far as research goes. It's just really hard to do that, especially across eras. What if the best metric for greatness as a Premier League manager is points per dollar spent? Yeah. Okay, you work that out then. No. <laughs> Come I back to this. <laughs> I, think it's, I think the answer is Sam Allardyce if we do that. Maybe. Oh, Maybe. sure. Of course. Always Could coming in enough. halfway through the season, not really spending anything, just getting the team to stay in the Premier League, as he did all but one time, I believe. Mm. Anywho, interesting question there from Josh Bishop. One of his many interesting questions. Thank you very much, Josh. One last question for this episode from Calvin Lazum. <laughs> I keep picking multiple questions from the same people this week. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what's wrong with me. These are excellent questions, though. Calvin, thank you for this one as well. With Ryan recently discovering the existence of the Trash Pandas, 
Which minor league baseball team would you like to field a soccer team based solely on their name and kit potential? This comes from uh, my discovery on Twitter that there is a minor league baseball team called the <laughs> Rocket City Trash Pandas. They are from Madison, Alabama, which I, maybe that's Rocket City. I don't know, but I don't care because it's wonderful. A trash panda, which, Graham, is a slang for a raccoon, by the way. Uh, oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. I think it's from Guardians of the Galaxy, or maybe it's from a meme or something. But, uh, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, the Trash Pandas is my favorite team name. Just just to have the name Trash in your name. It's just genius. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, so I, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd have them elevated to the very highest plinth, uh, Graham. So this question opened my eyes to an entirely new world, and I'm not sure that I was ready for it. Oh, yeah. Some of these team names. So what I did know one uh, minor league baseball team, and that's the uh, Albuquerque Isotopes. I knew that was a real team. I follow them on Instagram. Is that because of the Simpsons? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I love that one. For I am um, the mayor of Albuquerque. It's one of my quotes <laughs> I use all the time, Graham. <laughs> So that they are very much a real team. Um, but some others that caught my eye, the Sugarland Space Cowboys. Oh, yeah. They have a lot of potential. Their, yep. their badge has a sort of Daft Punk robot on it. So I'm envisaging <laughs> their players like wearing helmets as they're playing a game. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to struggle to not laugh as I'm reading some of these out. The Akron Rubber Ducks yep. would be very popular with my daughter. She loves uh, Rubber Ducks. But... My absolute favourite is the the Reading Fighting Phils, <laughs> and fighting <laughs> and fighting has no G on the end because of course it doesn't. Um, I don't know what their kits would be. Maybe just shirts off, gum guards in, and knuckles bared. But basically, yeah, just a Sean Dyche team. I think would suit that name yeah. very well. It, it seems to be like minor league baseball naming conventions are just go nuts, do what you like. <laughs> there's there's some my, my two other favourites are the Amarillo Sod Poodles. <laughs> I, I just don't know what a sod poodle is, but it's, uh, I'm just picturing a kit with a poodle on it and some like some grass on it or something. I don't know. Uh, and Joe, my serious contender for a soccer team which would have an awesome kit, the Danville Otterbots. So their, their logo is like a robot otter. I've gone. <laughs> The Danville Autobots. I'm just picturing, you know, you know what the mascot's going to be for that soccer team, Joe. And it's going to have a wonderful, maybe the, the, the kit will have a tail like an otter. I think, oh, so much potential. Wow. Wow. First of all, <laughs> this this is one of the best segments we've done in a long time. Calvin, thank you for this question. I could not wait for Graham to dive into this world, a world that I assumed he had never crossed paths with before. The New Mexico isotopes or Albuquerque isotopes, whatever it was, does get your toes dipped in the water. But I'm glad that you have now hopped feet first into the uh, the world of minor league baseball branding. Ryan, I'm glad that you uh, you tweeted about the trash pandas because otherwise we all wouldn't be here in this moment. So thank you for all of those things. Um, I have two nominations as well. This could have been an entire show on its own. So let's just get that out there now. My first nomination is the Montgomery Biscuits. Uh, Graham, unfortunately, <laughs> these will be your this will be your least favorite team because oh, I know man. you're not a huge fan of the Southern Biscuit uh, uh -huh. style here in the U.S., different from your Biscuits. But Who wants to be a biscuit? Who wants to say I'm a biscuit guy? On it, like, I get they're delicious, Joe, but like oh, it's not very. It's not it's like so a, good. a wild it's cat. It's so is it? good. The colorway is is good. It's strong. It's got a lot of gold. Um, the the mascot is just a biscuit with googly eyes on top of the top <laughs> bun, if you will, and a pad of butter between the top and the bottom part of the biscuit. Oh. So I'm envisioning them out there in their gold, like their gold kit, 
and just slathered up with butter before they step on the field. No, you think anybody's going to tackle you that way? Absolutely not. So the Montgomery biscuits are my my first choice. That is still my favorite one I think that I've ever found. And then the Jacksonville jumbo shrimp. Their mascot is like just a, a jacked shrimp. He's like just utterly shredded. He is flexing. He looks intense. Um, they are the minor league baseball team, uh, AAA affiliate of the Miami Marlins. So got to keep the seafood sort of together, all the sea creatures together in the in the Miami farm system. But I mean, once again, so, there are so sharks good. in the ocean. Like there are fiercer animals than shrimp. It's true, but not not this shrimp, Ryan. You haven't seen this shrimp before. Let me tell you, this this one's built different. He is. Oh my oh, god, man, that's goodness, unbelievable. Goodness. The 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 Canop- Canopolis. This is in North Carolina, Canopolis. apparently. Canopolis Cannonballers is a good one as well. Yeah. I just it makes me think of the the cornballer from Arrested Development. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of Arrested Development, the Savannah Bananas. There's always money in the Savannah yeah. Banana Stand. Yes, there is. Yeah, indeed. Yes, there is. <laughs> that's one of wow. my favorites too. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be controversial here, Graham. The the question is like kit potential. Mm. Are baseball kits or uniforms the least cool sporting uniforms possible? I think they are. I'm thinking about that for 10 seconds. Yes, I think so. I can't think of any other sport that has a less cool aesthetic than baseball, I think. It's very old-timey, Joe. Um, it is, it from is an outsider to the point. looking at baseball, they're like the, the tight pants with the, you know, the, the whole look. It's... Having, having said that, I owned an Anaheim Angels baseball jersey when I was like quite young. I was a teenager. And I did quite enjoy wearing that on holiday with like a T-shirt. And not. I didn't button it up. I'd have it kind of quite loose yeah. like a shirt. I, I can cool. see that. I can see that working for you, Graham, really well. Actually, like even today, I think that would oh, work thanks. for you. I uh, I think baseball jerseys are a better look. Strictly the the shirts, the pants, and whatever. Nobody's going to wear that on a regular basis. But I think they're a better look than NFL jerseys by a pretty wide sure. margin. You know, you get you might get some buttons. You at least get sort of a more retro look. Where NFL jerseys look like you're either just going to an NFL game or you're about to go play football. And for some reason, everybody put their jerseys on. So. From a style standpoint, I think most Major League Baseball jerseys, or in this case, the Montgomery Biscuit kit that's on my way, on on the way to me from Montgomery, uh, I think that's a better move than at least some other sports. I'm just thinking of the the, uh, the chant and song potential as well, Joe. Come on, you biscuits! Oh, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. I would sing that. Yeah, I, all- I would sing that. That's yeah. what I sing when I'm making my tea, Ryan. <laughs> cup of tea <laughs> very good very good i wonder what they would serve as concessions at that stadium I have to think about that because it would be a bit <laughs> it would feel a bit weird eating your mascot right it would yeah you could you could either lean into it all the way and go full-on cannibal or you you got to stay away yeah biscuit pie all right that feels like Down. the jumping off point for this episode <laughs> thank you very much calvin for that uh, and all your questions thank you everybody totalsoccershow.com slash questions if you'd like to send one in but for now joe lowry thank you very much for indulging my silliness in this episode as always go biscuits <laughs> and graham um shall i get you an amarillo sod poodles jersey sent sent to you oh, straight away yes please yes please ryan and a, a reading fighting phil's one as well please there we go like phil as in the name like phil yeah. <laughs> is there just some guy called Phil who's really angry? Is that what it is? I, I presume so, okay. yeah. All right. Thank you very much, listener, for joining us on this one. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.